0: When Sloan, Janelle and I, our son was just two years old, we were at my parents' house, and Sloan found a marble. And as two-year-old kids do, he wanted to taste it, and it got stuck in his windpipe. And by the time we noticed him, he was beginning to foam at the mouth and lose his strength. And I can still remember us sitting there on the floor. Um, we've done everything we know to do and Sloan is growing lethargic and he's beginning to lose consciousness. And he was about to die. And the marble popped out. Just popped out. You can imagine our joy <laughs> in that moment. I mean, you know, you go these emotional swings. There are some things in life that are devastating. Devastating. Your two-year-old son in your arms when there's nothing you can do. This is devastating. Marbles in a little kid's mouth. These are devastating. Sin that we have not dealt with is devastating. It's absolutely debilitating. If we do not learn how to bring our sin to God, We're in big trouble. Look with me at Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a psalm that teaches us how to deal with our sins. Psalm 32, I want you to start reading with me, looking at verse 3. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up as by the heat of summer. I read these verses and I can still see little Sloan slumped over in Janelle's arms. She's sitting on the floor. She's holding him. She's crying. We're crying out to God. His mouth is foaming and his eyes are fading. This is the kind of life and death image that David is giving here. I read these verses and I remember a very good friend of mine coming to visit me when I was away from home. I was in a hotel. I was preaching in a city um, in South Texas. He comes to see me in the hotel. He turns the lights out in the room. He sits on the other bed. He lays back and he confesses the affair he's been having. His life was a wreck. His sin was destroying him. Sin, if it's not dealt with, will destroy you. When I was 17 years old, I was in New Orleans, Louisiana. It was two weeks after my junior year of high school. I had been living a very self-centered life for several years. Instead of following God's path, For my sophomore and junior year of high school, I decided that I would follow my flesh. And I was giving in to my own evil desires day after day. I was sleeping in the downstairs of this house. Everybody else was sleeping upstairs. My parents, their best friends, um, their children, my parents' best friends who I'd grown up with. I wake up in the middle of the night and I am sick. And I can still see myself, I'm hunched over the toilet, I'm throwing up, and I hear God speak to me very clearly. Not in an audible voice, but I know it was God. And he was, rem- he was using a verse I had memorized, which is dangerous. <laughs> Be either hot or cold because you're lukewarm, i spew you out of my mouth. Every time I'm spewing. <laughs> and I knew, don't memorize that verse, friends. <laughs> And and I'm serious, after two years of being away from God, that verse, God was saying it clearly to me, Aubrey, this is what I'm doing to you, and I would confess my sin and it would stop. I'd go back to sleep, I'd wake up, same experience, more sin, more experience. Look at verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There are devastating effects of sin. And sometimes they are physical. In my life, that was a for real physical reaction to my sin. Sometimes they're emotional, they're spiritual. But there is real joy and real happiness and real life when our sin is really forgiven. Blessed is the man. It means happy. It means the life you want. That's what blessed means. There is a real happiness that you can experience if your sins are forgiven. When I was a child, I hardly ever wore shoes. Until I was out of kindergarten, we we lived in Verda, Louisiana. Verda, Louisiana, I think, had like a population of 32. <laughs> shoes weren't required, you know. And um, except for special occasions, you know, like Sundays in school. But other than that, it was no shoes. And so as soon as I would come home from one of these, you know onerous experiences like school or church. I would rip my shoes off and live my life. And uh, now my life wasn't quite like the people from Papua New Guinea that I've heard the, the trainums the talk about. My shoes weren't quite, my feet weren't quite that calloused, but calloused nonetheless. I still remember this time I was in kindergarten and I got a splinter. Now, I was a smart kindergartner. I knew Splinter equals mom with torturous devices. You know, (laughs) tweezers and needles. You should see Janelle when there's a splinter. She takes this evil pleasure in digging around in human flesh. Well, my mom was the same way, and so this one splinter, I read the, the, the tea leaves. I knew what was coming, so I just didn't tell mama. And things were okay for a while until my foot was so. Nasty, and there was this red line running up my leg. Well, when mom saw the red line, my strategy came to an end. (laughs) And she reached for her packet of torture devices, and she got the splinter out. I don't remember exactly which device she used, because at that moment, everything goes to a haze as I'm drifting in and out, you know, of joy. Joy. Finally, after digging around in my foot, out comes the splinter. You see, when it comes to my splinter, it was just like David's sin in this psalm. You know what my biggest problem was? It wasn't the splinter, it was my silence. That was David's biggest problem. It was his silence. All I had to do was tell mom and the splinter would be handled. I had no idea what that red line meant going up my leg as a kindergartner. I had no idea that that was poison, right? And that that was not going to end in a good way. And that for just a few moments of utter pain (laughs) under my mom's hand, I would be okay. All David had to do was tell God about his sin. And immediately look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Immediately forgiveness. Now what about you? When it comes to sin, so many of us are like that little five-year-old Aubrey thinking that we've Gotten away with it. And then it's just going to work itself out. But the solution is to end the silence. To break the silence. Look back at verse 2. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. Happiness does not result from deceiving yourself about your splinter. Happiness does not result from your silence. The deceit of verse 2 is the person who deceives themselves about their sin. It's the person who thinks they can get away with it, that they can just ignore it, that they will be okay. It's the person who thinks that the solution is worse than the problem. That's the deceit. The deceit is thinking that Owning up to it is worse than what's going on. But if we just confess, we can be blessed. Happiness. Again, notice verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will Confess my transgressions and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Look, feeling bad is not confession. Hurting is not the solution. Doing something good to make up for what you've done is not confession. You must break the silence. And you must break the silence not just in general... But in confessing to God what you've done. And when we honestly and humbly confess our sin, the effect is immediate. Immediate forgiveness, not penance, immediate forgiveness. Do you see in this whole psalm, God is ready and willing to forgive, just like my mom was ready and willing willing to heal me. But I had to come to her, or she had to, with her x-ray vision, figure it out. (laughs) Moms. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You see that word if you write in your Bible? Underline that word, covered. Now look back, look down at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What a beautiful word play. Underline that in verse 5. Cover again. Those who do not cover up their sin, they are the happy ones whose sins will be covered by God. Isn't that wonderful? Those who uncover their sins before God, God will cover their sins with His grace and His mercy. This is the basic move of when we stop covering up our sins. Grace and mercy. When it comes to David, who we saw in verse 2 was wasting away. Groaning under the weight of his affliction. The real problem all along was his silence. Do you see that silence is the rejection of grace? Your silence about your sin is your own rejection of God's grace. You can cover your sin with your pride and your shame or God can cover your sin with forgiveness and mercy and healing and the salve of his own power. Refusing to own up to our sins, to confess them to God, that's what hurts us. The point in confessing our sins is not to make ourselves feel guilty. The point is to prevent our guilt from taking its destructive toll in our lives. I confess, God forgives, that's the ticket. It's the only ticket. It's the only solution. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. And then David gives three shouts of joyful celebration in God's forgiveness. Look, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Silence. And groaning all day long, says a few verses earlier, have been replaced with shouts of joy. And you know what the difference is? You know what the pivot point is? Confession. This person who has been withering away and withdrawn. You know what happened to my foot after the splinter came out? It was okay. I've still got it. I mean, look, it's there. Look at verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or a mule. <laughs> Some of you have been called that before, right? Or with slightly different versions of the word mule. Without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle or it will stay near you. What about you? Will you confess your sin to God? Or will you go down the road of a stubborn, Strength-sapping silence. Will you choose self-reliance over honest, humble confession of sin? Now, we have lots of ways of not confessing our sins. You know, all of a sudden, I was trying to wear shoes for a while just to keep mama's eyes away from my splinter. We have lots of ways of covering up our sin. Why are we so reluctant to do? Do you know? I mean, we everything I've said, we all know. We've all experienced this. All of us have been like Sloan. At some time or another, about to go down. And then healed by God's grace. Why why do we resist the very solution that is life? I think there's two main Reasons. I'm sure there's lots more, but two main. On the one hand, some of us, it's this stubborn independence streak, our addiction to autonomy. We see this, you know, the way it comes out? It comes out in our excessive concern for personal privacy. We have these very clever ways of keeping everybody, including God, on the surface. We know how to diffuse a situation and get out from under the truth. We're so hesitant to reveal our innermost selves to the people around us and to God because we're afraid that it might make us look bad. And so we settle for these superficial relationships, both with each other and with God. Some of us have already done it this morning. We had a chance to confess and some of us, we treated God just like we treat our friends. Your life is okay with me, my life is okay with you, let's just keep it at that. We do that with our friends and we do that with God and we kneel in church on Sundays and we just wait for the confession time to get over never really really having dealt with the marble, the splinter. Then there's the issue of image. Some of us, we know our lives are marked by failure and a lack of self-control. We think we should have the discipline, the self-discipline to overcome the sin in our life. The habit, the evil, the wickedness. So we keep quiet about our sins because we think we should be doing better. So we keep quiet. And instead of confessing, we hide behind this, this facade of, I've got it together. But the danger, whether it's your addiction to your image or your addiction to yourself, independence. The danger is clear. If you allow it, your independence and your desire for acceptance will win. And if you refuse to confess your sins, you will experience a crisis so great, its devastation will be plain for everyone to see. Please, don't resist God's grace by your prideful silence. That's really what it is, isn't it? It's our pride. If you resist God's gracious offer of forgiveness by refusing to confess and repent, you will experience many sorrows. That's what verse 10 says. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Look, the wicked person isn't the person who's murdered. It's the person who in pride refuses to confess. Whatever the sin is. Whatever the sin is. Look, look back at just one psalm prior. Psalm 31, verse 23. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one Who acts in pride. God knows. And pride makes you his enemy. And he'll deal with it. Do you see? If you would be wise and confess. Instead of many sorrows. You will be surrounded. It says in verse 10. By God's steadfast love, his unfailing love. This is a no-brainer, right? Devastation, love. I mean, right? Does God have my best interest at heart? He claims to love me and to have my best interest at heart, but does he? This is the real issue. The real issue is trusting in God's goodness. The real issue... Is trust. When I was that little boy with the splinter, did my mom really love me? Did she really have my best interest at heart? Or was she some sadist or master? Which one is it that dishes up sadist? You see, it takes a little bit of faith to believe in God's existence. Just a little bit. I'm not saying it's easy. There's many people for whom even that little bit is very difficult. But believing in God's existence is easier than this. And don't think that because you believe in God, you're done or you're off the hook or you've got it all together. No, 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 no. You can even obey God with a little bit of faith. You know, the obedience of a slave or a pet. All you've got to have is a little bit. But faith, Real this kind of faith, it enters at those powerful moments in our lives when we have to decide if we believe God is good or not, in those moments when confessing our sin can only be done if we're convinced it's the good path, and God has our goodness in mind. Because I trust God. I confess my sins. Look at verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Look, the righteous are not righteous because they're sinless. They are righteous because they have willingly and openly and honestly confessed their sins to God. Gladness and joy are not a result of perfection. They are a result of confession. Confession. Gladness and joy. Happiness is a result of God's grace that will flow and cover your sins. We cannot talk genuinely about grace if we don't talk honestly about sin. Our culture is all about grace and tolerance, but we've lost the vocabulary of sin. And so all of our talk about grace and tolerance is ash, it's meaningless. Psalm 32 reveals two paths. Children, you have two options. Teenagers, adults, all of us we have two options. One life, happiness, joy. The other one? It's Sloane sitting there with the marble in his throat. It's Aubrey with the splinter in his foot. It's my Flynn, my friend hiding his affair. Now, we began our sermon series with Psalm 1 and 2. Many of you were here. The gateway into the life of prayer. Here we saw that the beginning of a life of prayer, Psalm 1, is to be the kind of person who is deeply open to God's instructions. Psalm 2, it's the person who is dependent on God's Son. And when it comes to your sin, it requires both. Will you accept God's instruction that confession is the only way out? And will you depend on his son that he alone can lift the stone of guilt from your life? Listen to Proverbs 28 verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The path to righteousness and spiritual health, real health, is deep and conscious ownership of our sins. So I ask you, if you're 8 years old or 80 years old, not looking at you, Fran? Is there sin in your life that you have not confessed? Is there? Like David in the Psalms, I beg you. Confess it. The pain of confession is so worth it. And and I don't mean confess it in a weenie way either. The language of your confession needs to measure up to the language of your offense. If I kill Luke and say to Mary Grace, oh, I'm sorry. Really, the language of confession has to measure the depth and the language of the offense. And repent, you see, repentance can be done in this routine way. It can be done in such a way that it's inconsequential and shallow. Teenagers, when your parents or children, when your parents tell you to tell your brother or sister sorry, and you walk up and say, I'm sorry, and then you walk off, that doesn't count. That doesn't affect anything. You have to mean it. You have to own it. And perhaps there are some of us in this place Where we do confess our sins to God, but we lack any real seriousness to our confession. Psalm 51 verse 7 says, The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. So this week, I encourage you, every day, set aside a specific time and a specific place and go to God in prayer and sit with the Psalms of Confession. Here they are. There's seven basic ones. Write these down, one for every day. Pick one that really works for you and sit with it. However you want to do it. Or all seven in a day, if that's what you need. Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, 143. Again, Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, 143. Since about the 4th century, these have been called the penitential psalms. They're the psalms that the church has used to get itself right with God. Now look, every day, remember this is for all of us, we're doing this in our journey with the psalms. I encourage you, set aside a specific time that every day you will meet God in a specific place. Set a date. Every day. And when you arrive in this special place at this special time, I encourage you, like I've done before, like we do here in our worship services, find a candle if you can, light it, or have an icon or something. Take a deep breath. Remember that you're in the presence of God. And then read one of these psalms, one of these seven psalms. This week, let's sit with these. Read it out loud and then do what Luke taught us a few weeks ago. In your Bible, most likely after a couple of verses, there'll be kind of a bigger gap. When you get to one of those bigger gaps, just stop. Look back over what you've read and turn it into your own prayer. You might not even have to mess with it. It might just be exactly right. Or you might have to just change a few of the pronouns or something. Or it might just provoke a prayer in you. Stop and do that. Look in Psalm 32. Do you see after verse 4, it says, Selah. We don't know what the heck that means. Um, Yeah, we don't know. We think it has something to do with like how to conduct public worship. And it somehow might mean take a break and reflect on what's gone before. We think. It's the best guess we've got. But that's what you do in those breaks. You just stop. You reflect on what you've just read. And you pray. Let's do this, all of us. Children, if you know how to read, I encourage you to do this. Seven Psalms, 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, 143. One more suggestion. Look at verse 2. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's easy to deceive ourselves in these moments. And beware your flesh. It is far more your enemy than you could ever imagine. And even though you set aside time to do this, a thousand excuses will come up to stop you from doing it. This kind of prayer that we're trying to grow in as a church doesn't come easy and it doesn't come natural. It requires the hard work of self-discipline and practice. And even when you have the self-discipline and practice to get yourself in this moment, your flesh will do everything it can to let itself off the hook. It's like Smeagol or Gollum, right? It's slimy and slippery and will fight tooth and nail. You see, even if you go to repent, Sometimes we just blaze right through and we don't really feel the weight of it. So here's my encouragement to you. It's an ancient technique. It's called the colloquy. It's this. It's what we did during our confession earlier. When you light that candle or whatever and you close your eyes and you take a deep breath and you exhale, imagine Christ on the cross. Look up into His face and ask Him, how could you who are God Stoop to come to this earth and die for me. And talk with him as one friend to another. And there beholding the face of your Savior, read through the psalm and confess your sin. Let's pray.